0: I'm Gemma Schneider, and this is Beyond the Headlines with the Harvard Undergraduate Foreign Policy Initiative. In our first ever episode of this series, I'll be speaking with Charlotte Bellis, a journalist from New Zealand with a focus in Afghanistan. Back in September 2021, the time of this interview, Charlotte was a reporter for Al Jazeera Network. She was stationed in Kabul, Afghanistan, where she had been reporting on the fall of the country to the Taliban since the summer of 2021. As of December 2021, Charlotte has pursued work as an independent journalist. My conversation with Charlotte was saturated with concerns about the chaos that was unfolding in real time back in September. And so, by revisiting this interview, we are going to relive the uncertainty and turmoil that was so fresh and raw during this period. But at the same time, my conversation with Charlotte was forward-looking, written with notes of uneasiness about the future implications of the Taliban takeover for issues related to women's rights, civil society, and humanitarian conditions in Afghanistan. Today, we can fill in some of the blanks and uncertainties that would not have been answerable without the passage of time. And that is exactly what we are going to do at the close of this episode. But first, here's Charlotte Bellis. Hi, Charlotte. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. So, I want to start off by asking you about the very beginnings of the crisis that we're seeing right now in Afghanistan or the recent beginnings. Following the takeover, so many people in Afghanistan journalists, female politicians, ordinary people fled from the country and they're continuing to try to get out now. Why did you stay? I stayed
1: because essentially it's my job. I I thought it was really important to stick around and and witness the tradition. I mean, it's a a front seat to history. And I I really didn't feel personally that threatened. Um, My dealings so far have been pretty good. And I think a lot of um, the fear that's coming out now is... um, a lack of understanding, knowing what to expect from the Taliban, if they're going to be as brutal as they were in the 90s or some type of Taliban 2.0. And my dealings had been good. So I decided just to kind of take it one day at a time and see how I got on. And um, I mean, it certainly helps that I'm a New Zealander. So there's no kind of history there. Um, well no uh, very emotional history at least between New Zealanders and the Taliban and um, I also work for Al Jazeera and I usually live in Doha and the leadership had been de- based in Doha for a long time as part of the negotiations with the US so I had some pre-existing relationships there which gave me a sense of security because I knew if anything happened that I could call some of those people that I that I knew um, had had known for a few years. Um, if, if I felt intimidated or, or was being harassed or anything like that, and so far um, I have been able to do my job without any interference. Uh, a couple of incidents where I've been asked to not film or or stop what I was doing, and then I I just called essentially the spokesman um, people in the leadership team, and and they called the person who was stopping me and, and said you have to let her film so I, I've had a good experience so far but in, in terms of how journalists are operating here most are able to do their jobs except for if you cover a protest and that's where we've seen flashpoints with people being detained their cameras broken being beaten um it, it has been uh pretty horrific and It has been going on for a couple of weeks and our protests have been outlawed uh, for the most part. I mean, you're meant to get permission before you have one, but we haven't seen any be approved at this point.
0: What do you think the implications
1: are of protests being outlawed? I mean, I I really don't understand why they've outlawed them. They say it's for security because they're worried about ISIS, which is quite inconvenient. I think they they very much feel overwhelmed, but in terms of the messaging of of what people are protesting about, women's rights, for example, and just general anti-Taliban sentiment, it it does silence people, um, certainly, but they still have a voice on social media. You still see that coming through, but it's certainly not as prevalent as it would be if they protested freely. Um, and I think I think it's, you know, a shame not to be able to have that kind of healthy feedback loop of governance and protest. And mean, the Taliban had said to us at the beginning that they were happy to have criticism and that as in terms of media, they welcomed it as long as we were fair and objective. Um, so it'd be nice to see them honour that not just for journalists, but also for the public to be able to protest if, if they have criticism of the movement.
0: Yeah, I know that at the first press conference that the Taliban had, which was their first press conference in like 20 years, you asked them the first question, and it was about women's rights. And you you sort of asked, what assurances can you give to women and girls that their rights are going to be protected? And their response was that they would commit to the rights of women within the framework of basically what they're, they're allowed to do in Sharia law. So have you seen this play out and do you buy into this answer? Um,
1: so there's a few things in that, in that they say women can have their rights, girls can have their rights within Sharia law. The interesting part and what the West often picks up on is okay, Sharia law, it's very conservative. We're going to see people hanging uh, and their hands being chopped off and this very kind of restrictive, brutal type of justice system. In fact, the last government, I mean, the the constitution that the last government ran under and and has done for a long time is also within the framework of Sharia law. it shouldn't technically be a change, but the problem is how you define Sharia, how strict and conservative you define it. I mean, much like the US and many other Western nations, our justice systems uh, have foundations in Christianity. And when they say Sharia law, that's just another way of saying that their justice system has a foundation in Islam. Um, But you can see in the West how, how some nations uh, take that quite strictly by having um, the death sentence, and others don't. So I hope that provides some type of explanation for Sharia at least. But for women's rights, it's a mixed bag at the moment. They, it's very hard because some, in some instances, women. Can carry on unaffected. I, in my hotel, women have continued working, um, girls go back to school, in universities, girls are back, but the small changes like women have to be taught by women uh, that they want a slightly more conservative dress. Um, there's, there's little things but it depends on who's governing in what spot at that time, who happens to be doing security at the university on that day. And how strictly they want to enforce it. Um, who happens to be doing a checkpoint, and how strictly they want to enforce things. So, as a movement, it's it's almost like they're trying to find their identity at the moment, and it's unclear how strict this will become when uh, these these early kind of teething um, issues and and once they sort out their governance. Uh, yeah, basically how strict they're going to be as a movement, uh, on the whole.
0: Yeah. So clearly we don't know exactly how that is going to play out yet. Yeah, there's a lot that's uncharted, but recently the deputy head of the Taliban's cultural commission said that women competing in certain sports, particularly those where they get exposed is inappropriate. Um, so that, We also don't know what that means completely yet, but do you think that this type of message helps confirm fears and anxieties about how women might be treated in the years to come?
1: Yeah, I think it, it does go to that because a lot of women are concerned about... They're, they're essentially being dictated to. They don't have representation anymore. When they protest, no one really listens. And essentially, they just have to sit there and cross their fingers that the Taliban will let them live their lives as they did previously. And no one's really sure exactly how strict they're going to be in and what they're going to enforce and what they're not going to enforce. Uh, I mean, we're going to interview the cricket board, which is the most popular. Cricket is the most popular sport in Afghanistan, and they've said um, that, like you said, women will have to cover up if they're going to play at all. Um, it, it's hard to. I, I don't. I'm. I'm wary of of saying, oh, you know, it's. It's not okay based off my own Western opinion because some women are okay with that and say, you know what, you know, we accept that and, and we would prefer to to wear that anyway. Um, there's, there's a lot of kind of misconceptions about from the West. We think, you know, I was a, a, frankly, my own opinion, I was appalled that women didn't get any uh, positions in the cabinet, but then I talked to women the next day and I, I was really kind of upset myself <laughs> personally um, for about a day. But then I talked to women, And some women were were upset and said, I'm actually quite worried. I'm the breadwinner of my family. Um, What does this mean? What if they say I can't work? It's going to be dire. But then other women said, look, to be honest, I don't really mind um, these these types of things as long as my children are safe and I can put food on the table. And the war has been so catastrophic for 20 years and and even longer. um, And poverty is so rife. That for a lot of people, what we worry about in terms of representation and different things, for the majority of Afghans, what I hear, at least on the streets, is yes, we're aware of this. Yes, it's concerning, but if the Taliban can be effective in security and and putting food on the table, then that's what's really important to me. Um, which, which I found quite interesting, um, and, and was a bit of a wake-up call to me in terms of, um, my own biases and, um, just how dire the situation is on the ground at the moment.
0: And the way that you have spoken about the Taliban's character in the past, honestly, when I read it, it sort of helped shift my own preconceived notions. I know, On one occasion, you said they're like any political party. There are politicians who are just doing what, you know, saying what you want to hear. There's the medieval brutes. These are quotes from you, but that you need to stay away (laughs) from. Um, And then there are smart, authentic people who actually want to see progress. So of these different actors, who do you think is bearing the most influence right now?
1: Yeah, and I should add to that as well. Um, when I say smart authentic people that want to see progress I mean then a western sense like how we would define progress because the the much more conservative religious side of the movement they would see progress in women wearing a burqa and they would see that as an accomplishment Um, whereas in the west um, most people would not so I I do believe because I've had dealings with with people with, with Taliban members on on all fronts, some people who um, could easily live in the West and live a normal nine to five job and you'd never know they were Taliban um, and who have and, and now are now here and then lead the roles. Um, and then there are some Taliban that refuse to look at me because I'm a woman or... Um, it tell, tell me that how i'm dressed is appropriate to cover up when i'm already wearing like a headscarf and and different things um and then there's kind of more savvy political types that um are wary of of what uh the west wants to hear and will say it but then behind closed doors be more um conservative so yeah it is a scope um of conservatism to liberalism like we would see anywhere um but yeah, I'm, I always had good deals, at least with the more liberal liberal Taliban members, but they are younger, they have smartphones, they have apps like we have, they listen to music, they take selfies, they uh, go out for like social outings like anyone would in cities and, and hang out with their friends. Um, many of them have never picked up a gun, so they're more ideological Uh, So it it has been quite eye opening to see that kind of scale and they'll take criticism as well. If I say, you know, why wouldn't you let women play sports and they could say, well, we think this, then I'd say, well, but why should it be up to you? Why not let women decide? Uh, Why do you get to make a decision for them? And, And they'll take that and have a debate about it. Um, whereas on the more conservative sector they just wouldn't even engage in a conversation with me
0: there there are two sides of the spectrum. How do they engage with each other
1: yeah the I mean from what was announced in terms of the cabinet, the hardliners more conservative guys are definitely holding the reins the The more progressive younger guys. I think from from what I can pick up, try to essentially massage the older ones into accepting how the world is and if they're going to be a part of a global society, what is required, and they have a better understanding for that, and they're less um, tied to old ideals and more willing to compromise. But it's hard to tell at this point how much... Those people can can massage the hardliners into being a little bit more conciliatory and and um, engage with the global community. At the moment, uh, I mean, we didn't see that the West and uh, you know many countries have put pressure on on the Taliban to include women, to include minorities, to have an inclusive government with former government leaders, and they didn't and it just kind of shows you how much they, how little they care about the international community and, and and appeasing people within the movement. Uh, so at the moment, it doesn't look like the progressive guys are getting much traction, but, uh, it will be interesting to see long-term if if they can soften, soften some of the hardliners.
0: Yeah. In terms of numbers, where are they? Are they a really small minority? And then is there anything that people outside can do to elevate and support them?
1: Uh, interesting question. It's hard for me to tell. I mean, there was about, from the last numbers I had at least before they took over, it was about 85,000 Taliban members uh, in the upper echelons. Uh, I'd say it was probably three quarters uh, a conservative and 25% more kind of liberal Uh, Western educated type people, which is probably quite surprising to to most people to think there's that many people who've been exposed and uh, around um, uh, or outside of Afghanistan and and understanding um, how the rest of the world works and and operate at ease within it. Um, But yeah, it is, they're, they're certainly the minority, but... I found it quite enlightening to be able to at least have conversations with those people and pick their brains about how the movement works and and have dynamic debates with them and be able to challenge them. And and that's one of the reasons I stayed as well was because I thought if if at least if there's some people in the movement that can take criticism and happily debate, then I can work within that environment going forward. And so far I have been able
0: to. You mentioned that that's kind of why you stayed? Something that you've cited as an instance that was somewhat frightening, even though you seem not to be easily frightened at all, um, is that you were held at gunpoint at a point. And I'm wondering what an instance like that kind of does to you as a as a reporter, as you know, a regular person. How does that shift the way that you navigate these scenarios? Uh, so that
1: instance was it was when the evacuations were happening from the airport and there were thousands of people around the perimeter and the Taliban were trying to push people back. So it wasn't overrun and evacuations could continue. And everything was really tense at that time. We were doing interviews on the street with people who were hoping to get through the gates and halfway through an interview, I turned and looked across the road. And I mean, this was a four lane um, road. So I'm on one side and they're on the other, but they had a gun pointed at my head. And then I just stared back at the guy and smiled. And then he lowered his gun and walked back inside. They had a checkpoint. I mean, I think it's for the most part, just intimidation. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's not personal. That's the thing. They're not, I know that they uh, don't care about me. And they're just, I mean, to be honest, I just think of them as like completely overwhelmed village boys who have been thrown into Kabul city and now are being trying to figure out how to run a government. And that member. well, they haven't had to do that in 20 years. Um, when they shoot in the air at these, these checkpoints and outside the airport, um, I mean, it's loud and you wonder if they really know how to use a gun. Um, but I certainly think if anything was to happen to me, it'd be because they didn't know how to use a gun and accidentally fired it rather than they were trying to cause me harm at all. Um, and they've been, I mean, outside the airport, you've seen those scenes of, of shooting and people running and screaming, but if you just kind of stand there and then say, excuse me, uh, what is happening here? Salaam alaikum. And then they say, oh, well, you know, they're trying to get into the airport. And a lot of them speak English. And then you say, oh, okay, do you mind if I just stand here with your commander? I'm just interested to watch. And then they kind of say, oh, okay, okay. And then just kind of run off. So they you can work with them, but it's kind of sensing the mood, how tense they are, and then just being respectful basically. And then, and then you can pretty much do your job.
0: So this is my last question, but sort of given the fact that in your eyes, it is sort of this hollow intimidation, not much of a real tangible threat. Do you think that it could morph into something stronger and more dangerous moving forward, or does this, overall picture kind of leave you hopeful for what is going to be the the reality moving forward
1: I wouldn't say I'm hopeful and I lost hope I mean the the hard part is this is all from my own bias. um because if I say I'm not hopeful it's that I'm not I'm not hopeful of um uh an inclusive government and I'm not hopeful that women will have a strong voice and be able to challenge the Taliban publicly. But for most Afghans, their definition of hope is probably more, like I was saying earlier, security and food on the table. Um, so on in that sense, I mean, security-wise, it's already vastly improved. I mean, I, I heard from a um, another journalist who was in the provinces yesterday that um, one hospital said this is the first time in 22 years we haven't had a conflict related injury in our hospital. Um, So this, I mean, the war is over, right? But that same hospital didn't have any medicine because the Taliban are sanctioned and therefore this country, which ran off international aid and donors, is no longer getting any money. And so they can't afford to pay doctors and nurses and buy even paracetamol. So there's this kind of bipolar situation of, yes, while well, security may be good, um, which is certainly an element to be hopeful and positive about. The economy is dire, and this is already an incredibly vulnerable country. So how do you protect people from um, poverty and uh, you know, getting treatment for any type of health condition, whether it be something incredibly basic like giving birth? Who is, who is going to help them? And if the international community isn't around anymore, um, I think it's probably pretty scary for women. Uh, so it's, it's a very fluid situation at the moment. Each week it changes depending on what kind of relationship the Taliban and the international community um, end up having.
0: Yeah, it's complicated and it's it's ongoing and uh I I can't even imagine what it must be like to be there and you know what you're doing is so important sending out these messages and kind of keeping everyone up to date and informed and so I so appreciate that you made the time to to do that with us today.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. It it is um it's my pleasure and especially being on the ground here. I mean, there's there's probably about a dozen ju- foreign journalists here. And I mean, I work in TV, our stories are like two minutes long. And how much context can you provide within that? So thank you for having me because then hopefully it provides um, more of a background on, on some of the things that everyone's
0: seeing. Thank you so much to Charlotte Bellis for taking us beyond the headlines in our first ever episode of this series. Now it's time for an update. So, this interview ended with speculations about future slowdowns in the realm of basic issues like gender equality in Afghanistan. Where are we now? In many respects, we're almost exactly where Charlotte predicted. The latest data available reveals that approximately 60% of out-of-school children in Afghanistan are girls, according to a gender alert report published by UN Women Afghanistan on January 4, 2022. There had been no directives in place barring girls from accessing secondary school prior to the Taliban takeover. But things have changed since then. By November 2021, less than three months after Taliban forces entered the capital and took hold, girls only had access to secondary schools in seven of 34 provinces. Girls are reportedly attending secondary schools in some provinces at this time, But there is still no central, unified policy at the national level that guarantees equal access to education, at all levels, for girls and boys. The Gender Alert also raises gender equality concerns in the realms of professional work, healthcare, freedom of movement, and participation in public and political life. Of course, a large body of Afghan women, as Charlotte mentioned, simply don't care about these more modern markers of gender equality. Things like workplace opportunities, or fair access to education, which have become so widely embraced in the West. Instead, many Afghan women just care about safety. They care about security. They care about peace. And yet, these basic needs are also becoming increasingly compromised. At the end of October 2021, Afghanistan ranked last, that is, number 170 out of 170 countries on the Global Woman, Peace, and Security Index. The country's absolute score on this index is nearly 30% lower than it was in 2017, a step back which was driven by worsening rates of violence and community safety, according to the managing director of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. The culprit, needless to say, is rooted in the compounding wrath of the Taliban takeover and the spillover effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And unsurprisingly, as indicated in the report, it's expected that the Taliban's political reach will continue to exacerbate these conditions in the years ahead. With that said, there's one final issue that must be discussed before we finish up, an issue which, for many, will hit close to home in a pretty literal sense. I want to talk about our role and responsibility in this muddled matrix of injustice and disarray. It's pretty obvious that the state of humanitarian need in Afghanistan is stark, Indeed, at this point, the United Nations estimates that about 55% of the population, amounting to nearly 23 million Afghans, are facing extreme hunger, with almost 9 million at risk of facing famine in the cold, wintry months ahead. But what's less widely understood is that we, as actors on the international stage, are, in reality, doing little to help these matters. According to Al Jazeera, Afghanistan's economy has relied heavily on foreign aid for years. But following the Taliban takeover, support from the international community has waned. The United States remains the top donor to Afghanistan in the International Humanitarian Response Plan, but strict sanctions on Taliban leaders make it difficult for vital aid to actually be delivered. According to the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms While Countering Terrorism, The sanction exemptions that have been carved out by the UN Security Council, which are designed to protect activities that support basic human needs in Afghanistan, are more symbolic than anything else, and do little to fight this problem in practice. The bottom line? We're not doing enough. In fact, our political pursuits of counterterrorism, strategic or not, have undermined our very own efforts to effectively provide humanitarian support. The answers to how we should approach this are far from straightforward, and it would be narrow-minded if, right here, I attempted to advance a clear, singular solution to these problems. Experts at the UN can't even agree on what the quote-unquote right move is here. Plus, it shouldn't go unsaid that, for some Afghan people, there are pockets of celebration and optimism following the rise of the new regime. At the Wall Street Journal... Yaroslav Trofimov has written about how families and schools in rural Afghanistan are celebrating their first experience in decades without perpetual warfare. Obviously, the state of affairs in Afghanistan is far from black and white, and it's still not entirely clear what issues are most in need of attention and how, or even whether, we should go about addressing them. What is clear, however, is that having these conversations is vital. But public interest in these matters is falling faster than it even began. A telling look of Google search trends in the United States shows a giant spike for searches including Afghanistan in August. But this spike completely collapsed, returning to near-normal levels by mid-September, and it has remained stagnant ever since. It's ironic, really, that popular interest in Afghanistan is diminishing as need is on the rise. This dynamic is emblematic of our modern media landscape, in which stories wax and wane all too quickly. We've all been guilty of this inattention and forgetfulness at some point or another, but I hope that this return to my September conversation with Charlotte Bellis does more than take you back to this time of rising chaos. I hope that, instead, it beckons you to look forward, that it sharpens your focus, because ultimately, this is not old news. It's ongoing with lasting implications for women for children and of course for the millions of afghan people on the brink of famine this winter so why has this conversation effectively stopped at a time in which there is still so much confusion pain and work to be done i'm jemma schneider reporting from the harvard undergraduate foreign policy initiative to listen to future episodes of this series check out our website, HarvardForeignPolicy.org. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Bye for now. And thanks again for joining me to go beyond the headlines.